This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 23rd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The hair-on-fire rhetoric that typically accompanies congressional renewal of surveillance powers was largely swamped by a more immediate concern of the past few weeks, COVID-19. And even though those surveillance authorities are being renewed, it's for a shorter period of time, and members of Congress will, for the first time, be allowed to offer amendments. It's a startling turn of events, Cato's Patrick Eddington comments. We've had the Patriot Act since 2001. It was passed hastily after uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, We've had knowledge of broad-based spying on Americans since at least 2013. Uh, And yet every time Congress is set to reauthorize certain uh, surveillance authorities, Uh, They promise hearings. The hearings never happen. The expiration date gets close. uh, And members of Congress, uh, leadership in Congress says, well, we just have to reauthorize this and uh, we can revisit this at a later date. Is that about right? Uh, It is pretty much exactly right. And of course, this is one of the reasons why I I chose the title of my book as I did, the the Triumph of Fear, the one that I, this monster that I continue to, to grind away on here. It's a very, very familiar pattern, uh, you know, and and of course it it actually starts uh, in December of 2005 when we get our first massive revelation about the extent of illegal warrantless surveillance by the federal government, courtesy of the New York Times, uh, in December of 2005 when they revealed the stellar the stellar wind program, and a revelation that should have led to the Patriot Act being repealed and everything else. Uh, that had been done, uh, examined, and, and frankly, people prosecuted, instead led uh, the Congress to engage in a two-year process of, of making that illegal stellar wind program legal through what became known ultimately as the FISA Amendments Act, passed in 2008. And, and this is the pattern that we have seen again in, in 2011 and 2012. Um, it, it's the pattern that, that we've seen right up to this year, 2020, but but this time, uh, surveillance hawks ran into a little bit of a problem, uh, courtesy of, of major league uh, misconduct by the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the Carter Page case, uh, which, of course, is part of the, the Crossfire Hurricane uh, investigation, uh, uh, the examination of that by the Department of Justice Inspector General. And, and that report revealed uh, a number of things. I think one of the most important being that the FISA court, which many of us have always said is a rubber stamp that doesn't do its job, was pretty much demonstrated to be a rubber stamp that did not do its job. We had FBI attorneys in one case actually deliberately altering an email in order to try to get additional authority, a a renewal of authority to continue surveilling uh, Carter Page. Now I'm I'm not here, you know, to defend Page uh, in any sense with respect to his contacts with alleged or known Russian intelligence operatives. I think, you know, looking at uh, an American um, who is the direct and clear target of a Russian FSB or GRU recruitment effort is a legitimate national security concern. I, I don't I don't dispute that. But when we begin to see the FBI essentially multiple personnel in the FBI. Um, completely deforming the FISA process, actually lying to the FISA court, uh, and and continuing to surveil Page when there really was no actual, truly legitimate basis to do so. Certainly, in connection uh, with his work for the Trump campaign, 
it, it raises all manner of questions. And, and this in, in FBI lingo, this, this was known as a sensitive investigative matter investigation or a SIM investigation. And those are supposed to be the most tightly controlled uh, and most closely monitored investigations. And here we had illegality after illegality um, that, that went undetected for the longest period of time. And it just makes you, makes me at least, ask this very basic question. If in the most sensitive investigations, they, they made these number of mistakes and or engaged in that kind of misconduct, how are they handling investigations that don't involve the president of the United States or people around him? I think all of us have to be deeply concerned about that. To the extent the president cares one way or another about surveillance authorities, presumably the Carter Page episode has made him a little uh, more suspicious of uh, the ability of this court to essentially rubber stamp government wishes when it comes to who ought to be surveilled. I don't think there's any uh, question about that. You know, I mean, the, the president, of course, had made a series of, of accusations about his campaign being spied upon and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of establishment in Washington uh, essentially, you know, kind of poo-pooed that idea, despite the fact that, of course, the, the specific agency we're talking about here, the FBI, has a decades-long track record of engaging in political surveillance. And, and so, again, not to make any statement about the veracity of every single claim that Mr. Trump has made, uh, but it's clear here that an independent and I think generally well-accepted investigative outcome here showed us that there was to some degree a there there. And, and what it showed us about the entire process uh, involving the FISA court should really fundamentally uh, enrage Americans and concern every American about the potential uh, for themselves to become you know, the, the target of this kind of activity. I mean, one of the points that I am trying to make in writing this book is that at the end of the day, if you're as an individual or as part of a group, you get out there and, and you raise a ruckus politically, in most cases, it's not a question of whether you will be subjected to government surveillance uh, and potentially related political repression, but only how much, how long, and how bad it's going to be. And, and we've, we've tended to find that you know, kind of across the board. And, and here at Cato, of course, you know, at the beginning of this year, uh, you know, we, we put out a statement and I had an accompanying blog post talking about this Freedom of Information Act project that I've had underway trying to determine exactly whether or not, you know, we have been a target. And of course, in the course of that, I, I got 23 uh, what are known as Glomar responses, uh, which are the classic, we will not confirm or deny whether or not uh, we have information on you, the Cato Institute, or Ron Paul's organization, Campaign for Liberty, uh, or, you know, very progressive left-leaning organization uh, like Restore the Fourth or Fight for the Future or some of these other organizations. And everyone should be deeply, deeply concerned about that. You should be able to go about your political life, express your opinions and your views, engage in constitutionally protected uh, speech and association activity to advocate on, on a given candidate or on behalf of a given cause without fear that your activity is going to get you tagged as some kind of subversive or malcontent or threat or whatever. The repeated reauthorization of these various surveillance authorities without very much circumspection uh, has, uh, would you say, come to an end? Uh, that is, there will be amendments allowed uh, for uh, after this, at the end of this short reauthorization. So 
what what might that look like? I think that in in many respects we're in slightly uncharted territory here in, in that the the success of, of Senators uh, Paul and and Senator Lee and and a number of other folks, uh, Senator Wyden, in essence, uh, being able to get enough votes together to preclude Mitch McConnell from being able to invoke cloture uh, and and proceed to a vote on that very terrible bill, the FISA so-called FISA reform bill that the House passed, that just hasn't happened before. And and again, I I point directly to. Uh, the powerful effect that this DOJ IG report has had on people like, let's say, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, uh, or maybe even, uh, you know, Ben Sass and and some other folks um, in the GOP Senate conference to finally get them to realize that the FBI is not your friend. Um, <laughs> the FBI is nobody's friend at the end of the day, and I, I think we'll have to just you know see how it goes. I mean, my prediction to folks has been, you know, look. What Mitch McConnell did was basically give himself 77 days to try to twist enough arms to get to 61 votes so he can go ahead and invoke cloture uh, and then have to deal with these amendments, which are being subjected uh, to the 60-vote uh, supermajority threshold. And, and I, I think, again, that's an example of, of Mitch McConnell not letting the Senate work its will. I have every confidence uh, if a simple majority uh, were were allowed here, every one of those amendments would pass. And I think that's exactly what McConnell uh, and other surveillance state hawks are concerned about. I, I think they're deeply concerned about that. So I, I expect a lot of arm twisting over the next two and a half months. And uh, you know, when we get to late May, early June is when we'll find out whether or not they've they've been successful or whether we finally are beginning to kind of turn the tide on this stuff. And just to remind listeners, uh, your contention is that uh, the intelligence agencies and domestic federal law enforcement agencies um, did not foresee 9-11, not for lack of information. Both the Congressional Joint Inquiry, uh, this was the House and Senate Intelligence Committee Joint Inquiry, concluded that the intelligence community had more than enough information to uncover the plots. That was published in December of 2002. And then, of course, the 9-11 Commission uh, in July of 2004 concluded exactly the same thing, but in much greater detail and, and looking at a wider range of, of agencies and departments uh, that, that were essentially guilty. The one agency that really did not get the scrutiny that it needed was the National Security Agency. Uh, and I, I've written about this extensively, and it's actually one of the core Freedom of Information Act, the most prominent Freedom of Information Act lawsuit that I have going uh, right now over two uh, pre-9-11 programs at NSA, one of which uh, was canceled uh, literally just three weeks before 9-11. And if it had actually been allowed to go forward even a month or six weeks before 9-11, almost certainly would have uncovered every single one of the plots. Um, so that that's a major scandal. And it's also another example of, of what I call the hidden history of America. Uh, when you allow the government, when you allow agencies like NSA, FBI, CIA to hide uh, their failures, their misconduct, et cetera, behind a shield of, she uh, a shield of secrecy, uh, this is why no reform really ever has a chance. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why you know, using FOIA uh, and FOIA litigation is, I think, so important in the era that we're living in. Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.